Luke 21, Part 1, spoken by Pastor Peter Hahn. Good morning to those in the nursery and to online community. We just want to walk, welcome you here at Metro Community Church, especially if this is your first time with us. Thank you so much for, enjoy, uh, for joining us today. Uh, I believe we live in a culture today, and if I were to ask you, if you are in relationships with certain people that you would consider to be important to you, their words to you are very, very important to you, isn't it? It carries a lot of value, a lot of weight to it. And I think for many of us, some of us, we still live with the scars of some of the words that were said to us maybe growing up. Maybe our parents never felt like we achieved the, the sort of the achievements that they had set for us. And so as a result of it, you know, you've heard things like you're never going to do well, you're going to be a failure or things like that. And no matter how much you succeed as an adult today, you still live with the horror of that reminder that it's just never enough. And you live with the weight of, that, of those words that were spoken to you many years ago. And it really has overwhelmed you. Many of you here maybe are here today and uh, you've heard uh, words from your lover in the past. Maybe you were dating somebody and they promised you that they would marry you. And they didn't. And even till this day, you still live with the pain of that reality. And it's overwhelming to you. I used to attend this church in the past and there was one of the pastors there. And he dated several women in the congregation. And as he got together with them and he met with them, he said that God is impressing upon me that we are going to get married. Well, God had revealed that to the pastor. They took his words very seriously. They were so happy to hear that. And then it was only a few months later he would come and say in prayer, God told me that we need to break up. And he would break up with one girl after Another. Thankfully, the denomination caught wind of his actions and he no longer is serving as a pastor anymore as a result of it. But those words destroyed these women. They were friends of mine that needed years of therapy to deal with that reality. Words are powerful, aren't they? They hold a lot of weight. I remember years ago when my father was alive, uh, I used to take him out for breakfast every month. And, you know, he was in his early 70s, but, man, that man can eat. And he would just eat and eat and eat. And my father, he's a typical Korean father. He never would encourage me. In fact, you know, unfortunately, you know, he was abusive physically and even with his words. And we were just eating one day. And it was probably about eight years ago or so, maybe nine years ago. And he said, Peter, I'm so proud of you. And I never thought in a million years my father would share those kinds of words with me. And it just completely affirmed me and it gave me so much strength. And if you see my car, I have a, a clay fingerprint of my father. Before he, when he passed, we were able to take a, a fingerprint. And somebody was nice enough to make it into like a necklace and I hang it on my mirror. And whenever I have a bad day, I like to hold on to that fingerprint. And it reminds me of my father saying he's so proud of me. Those words are powerful. And many of you have been the recipients of words that have brought you life. But some of you have been the recipients of words that have really hurt you and, and destroyed you. And I think we can all say that when somebody's important to us, their words do matter to us. How about Jesus' words? If he's important to us, are his words valued in our lives? Does it have a weight, a gravitas to it? I think for a lot of us, our struggle is that though we say we believe in Jesus, it's very hard to take his words seriously and it's very hard for us to carry it and value it such where it begins to sort of shape our lives. 
And today, we established last Sunday that we are in the last week of Jesus' life. We call that the passion narratives. And I believe his words are never more important for us to listen to right now. Last Sunday, we met Jesus, the Lord. Today, we're going to meet Jesus, the prophet. And he's going to give two prophetic words. One that's going to happen in the lifetime of the disciples. So it's something that's going to happen soon. And the second prophecy he gives is a prophecy about the end times. And we got to pay attention to this. And, you know, we're, not, we're just going to barely scratch the surface on the end times today. But next Sunday, we're really dedicated to the end times because the, the latter part of this chapter really focuses on the last days of this earth. These are words we have to hold not just with value, but it must have a sense of gravitas so that it begins to shape us in how we live our lives today. And that's what we're going to look at today. And so I hope that you would open your eyes and your ears as you, we take a look at this passage that we're going to look at. And I hope that as we hear the words of God, that it will begin to penetrate us and we'll begin to listen, even question and wonder some of the things that Jesus is saying. Because that's a good Bible reader. is when you're not just reading it and you just read it and you don't ask any questions. I, when I read the Bible, I love to ask questions. I love to be devil's advocate. And I love to engage within the scripture. So here is Jesus days away from being betrayed by Judas, days away from eventually being crucified on the cross, and yet his teachings are still so powerful and prophetic. Let's look at verse 5 of chapter 21. Some of his disciples were re remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places. And fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm. And you will win life. That is the word of our God, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And so, Lord, there is a lot of weight to your words in this passage. I pray you'll help us to make sense of it. God, I'm so inadequate to bring this word to you today and to the church. So, God, I really need you to step in. I need you to help us to see what you really mean here. And I pray that there would be such a gravitas to the words that you shared today. I pray for anyone in this room, and there may be a lot, that are suffering today. God, I pray that this would offer a fresh perspective of their pain. And God, that you would begin to do a work or continue to do a work 
that will lead to a real deep sense of healing and peace. So I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, God, I pray that it will be pleasing unto you and all of God's people said, amen. amen. So we find here in, this, in the beginning part of this chapter is that the disciples now make their way outside the temple. Before that, last Sunday, they were inside the temple. And you remember what they were doing with Jesus? They were watching who was putting what in the offering basket. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Could you imagine like if like, you know, some of our pastors were there and looking at what you were putting in the offering basket? You'd be like, mind your own business, right? And so like they were looking and Jesus says, this widow who gave these two coins, she gave the most because she gave sacrificially. Now they make their way out to the temple and the disciples are just amazed by this building. They're looking at the stones. They're adorning it and they're saying, this is amazing. And Jesus gives such a prophetic word here that really sort of confuses them. We're going to get into that. But what you need to know about the Jewish temple was that it was the epicenter of the Jewish faith. In just a matter of days as the, as the Passover celebration is about to happen and the celebration of the unleavened bread is about to happen, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people will come around the world to Jerusalem and worship God at the temple. So it's a significant time during the time when Jesus gives his prophecy here. And so the temple was going through a major renovation project. It was such a major renovation project. It was like a major fixer-upper. And if you watch the show Fixer-Upper by Joanna Gaines and Chip Gaines, I don't even, I've never liked HGTV until about 30 days ago. <laughs> I watch it more now than ESPN, which is crazy. But I am so addicted to that, to that station, especially that show Fixer-Upper. The temple was going through a major fixer-upper. It doubled in size, all right. Herod the Great started the construction in 20 BC. It was not completed until 63 to 64 AD. So it took 84 years to renovate. It was a major, major scale of rebuilding this temple, reconstructing, adding twice the size of the temple. And in 33 AD, Jesus, while the construction is still going on and it's still looking very beautiful, the disciples go and say, this is a beautiful building. Jesus is saying that it will be destroyed, that the temple is going to be destroyed. Now, this temple was the marvel of the world. The Roman world looked at it and said, this is a beautiful temple. How in the world did they, were they able to do something like this? Dignitaries, kings from other countries would donate materials so that this temple could be built. So it was this beautiful temple. And you would imagine that if a temple that big and that grand that took 84 years to sort of renovate, you would think that it would have a longer lifespan, don't you? In seven years, this temple was completely destroyed by the, Roman, by the Roman soldiers. That prophecy that Jesus gave in 33 AD came into fruition directly in AD 70. The temple was finished at 63 AD. Do the math. There was only seven years that the temple actually had some peace. And then it was completely devastated. I... This idea of the temple, for 84 years this temple had been rebuilt. In some ways you could say that these people were just, the people of God were just living for themselves for 84 years. They were living their way. And here's the problem. When you decide to just kind of live the life that you want to live your way, kind of outside from God, it won't last. And it got destroyed. The only way for you and I to live a life honestly worth living that will last for all eternity is when we actually do surrender ourselves and that we live our lives according to the will of God, according to the desires that God has for you and for me. So why did this happen? 
Why did the temple, why was it destroyed when so much money went into it, when so much, so much power and, and work went into it, hard labor went into it? Why was it destroyed only after seven years of it being completed? Why? Because the people of God rejected Jesus Christ. That's why it was completely destroyed. That's why it was completely destroyed. And so when Jesus gives this prophetic word, the disciples don't fully believe him. They're struggling with it. And that's why they say, uh, Jesus, when will these things happen? And then he says in verse 8, watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he. The end, the time is near. Do not follow them when you hear of wars and uprisings. Do not be frightened. These things must happen first. But the end will not come right away. Jesus is giving them a forewarning. That when teachers come, when people proclaim to be the Messiah and saying that the end is coming, don't believe it. You remember back in the day, uh, way back in the day, Waco, Texas? Now it's the home of Joanna and Chip Gaines. I didn't know, right? But Waco, Texas, back for me, was the place where there was a cult and a leader by the name of David Koresh. And he predicted that they would, the end would come. And so he and his congregation decided to burn themselves to death because of it. Because the end was coming. Jesus says, be careful. That's a sign that's going to happen. And when you start to see wars breaking out, it's a sign that this temple will be destroyed. He's not talking about the end times yet. He's talking about this, the signs when the temple will be destroyed. What is the significance of this prophecy that Jesus gives here to the disciples? How can you and I apply that to us, to us, to, uh, for us today? What is the principle that we learn? That when you and I reject God the way the people of God rejected Jesus... There is pain and destruction headed our way. Did you get that? If you and I reject God, pain and destruction is headed our way. The way it was for the people of God. In Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, we talked about this a few months ago. Jesus laments. And this is what he does before he after he prophesies this. He says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he went over it and they said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They would dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When we reject God, when we reject them, pain and destruction is headed our way. Why? Because you rejected God and therefore God rejects you. God doesn't reject you. He only rejects you if you reject him. Now, how do we reject God? It's when we don't repent the proper way. All right? Repentance, many of us, we, we, we define that word as asking God to forgive us of our sins. It's so much more than that. The word, the theological definition of repentance is you actually turning the other way from your sinful ways. That's what repentance means. It's so much more than you just asking God to forgive you of your sins. You actually have to pivot and walk the opposite direction. But that pivot requires you to make a plan for you to deal with that sin or those, the sinful ways in which you struggle with in your life. And that's the key thing here. True repentance isn't just asking God to forgive you when you have sinned. But it's saying, what am I going to do to sort of prevent myself from doing this again? Right? That's what repentance is about. It's this pivot. It's about you creating a plan, right? And not just creating a plan, but it's about executing the plan as well. That's important because many of us, we set plans, but we never execute it. 
But you got to be willing to set a plan and execute it because if you don't make the pivot and walk the other way and you just see repentance as God just forgiving you of your sins, then you're going to stay very close to your sins or the sinful nature in which you and I both have. And when we stay so close and intimate with our sinful nature, there is no hope, guys and gals. I am such a sinful person. It is disgusting and ugly how sinful I can be, how selfish I can be. How evil I can be. And if I don't have a plan for that, and all my plan is just to ask God to forgive me whenever my self-centeredness comes in, whenever my evil comes in, or my anger and rage sets in, if that's just my plan, then there's no hope. I'm going to keep doing the same things over and over. I have to create a plan, and i got to execute it, because if I don't, then I'm rejecting God, and I have nothing to do left but just to live my life according to my sinful nature. And so are you pivoting today? Have you made the pivot yet? Do you have a plan to deal with your sinful nature? When we first moved back here from California uh, about 14 years ago, we lived in Edison, New Jersey with my in-laws. We didn't have a home yet. We wanted to buy a home up here. But because, you know, we didn't, we didn't check it out before we moved out here, we just said we'll live with our in-laws for a few months till we find something. And so we did that. I went down there. My wife was pregnant with Kayla, and she was going through morning sickness and all those things. But I just really felt that because my wife was with her mom and dad, brother and sister, that she was getting all the emotional support she needed. I really believed it. And so I just, every day, I went up to North Jersey to meet up with people to try to establish this church. Came home nights every day, and it was late when I would come home. Most of the times people were, were sleeping. And there was one particular evening, I remember coming home, it was probably about 11, 30, 12 o'clock. All the lights were off, and I realized everyone was probably sleeping. So I'm being as quiet as I could possibly be with my big old 200-something pound body. And uh, I, you know, I walk in, and you still hear a lot of creaking because I'm a big guy. And uh, I wash up real quickly. I go into my room. My wife's sleeping on one end. Christina's in the middle because we didn't have a crib for her then. And, uh, and so I get into the, my side, I put my blanket over me, put my head on the pillow, and usually when I do that, it doesn't take much to make me go to sleep. And as soon as I put my head on the pillow, I hear, you don't love me. I remember thinking, oh man, this is going to be a long night. <laughs> and it was. For hours upon hours, she was lecturing me how I was failing her as a husband and how she needed emotional support. And I tried to defend myself, but I couldn't because she was absolutely right. So I said, would you please forgive me? I won't, I'll do my best not to do that again. And as gracious as she is, she said, yes, she will forgive me. I was good for about two to three weeks. And then I just went back up to Bergen County every single day, every single day. And that lasted for six years, Metro. Why? Because I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do it. I just said, I just thought as long as she forgave me, that was all I needed to do. I didn't set a plan. And so because I didn't have a plan, I just kept doing the same thing over and over and over again. And for six and a half years, I was hurting her because she felt like a single mother. And she felt like, how could I tell him he should work less because she's doing God's work? I can't be telling him to do that less. And so she just kind of took it and dealt with it for six years. And for me, I just didn't have a plan. And so I just kept doing my own thing. And that's the problem with us. We think just going to God and saying, okay, God, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what I've done. We think that's all we need to do. 
You need a plan. I need a plan. And we need to execute that plan so that we can make the pivot and walk towards God and not towards that sinful nature. That's the challenge for us. And Jesus says that when we reject them, that means we're not repenting properly. It doesn't mean that you're never going to sin. He knows we will. He knows we're going to sin. But when you do, what's the plan to deal with it? I talked about last week that my greatest plan to deal with my sins is having somebody that I can confess it to regularly. And I don't always not sin, but I tell you what, before I sin, I think about, I got to share it with this guy. And I don't like doing that. That's like a shame. So I try to do my best not to sin in that way. But you and I have to have a plan. What are you doing to deal with your sinful nature? Because if we don't have a plan, you don't have hope. You can't make the pivot and you can't walk the other direction. And therefore, you're rejecting God. And when you reject God, there is pain and destruction headed your way and my way. Because when we are left to our sinful nature, do you think there's any hope in that? There's absolutely no hope in our sinful nature. And it's a dangerous place for us to be. Jesus predicted that this temple will be destroyed. And in 37 years, it was completely destroyed. The disciples had to take him at his word. But we don't have to do that because we know what happened. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And so the words of Jesus are powerful. We have to realize that his words have tremendous amount of weight. And then he goes on and he talks now about the end time. So let's look at verse 10. Let's look at verse 10. He said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places. And fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. It's horrible. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. What do we learn about Jesus' words about suffering? The title of the sermon is Suffering Hope. What do we learn about suffering from the words of Jesus? The first thing we learn about suffering from the words of Jesus is that it does not, when we suffer, when the world suffers, it does not invalidate God's ultimate control. When the world suffers, when we suffer, it doesn't invalidate God's ultimate control. Can I get an amen to that? God is sovereign, meaning he is in control. That is what that word means, all right? And this is important for Jesus to go into here because there's so much chaos. There was chaos back in, in the world back in the first century. But isn't there so much chaos today in the world in which you and I live in today? And sometimes as we see the chaos that's happening before us, as we see the natural disasters happening all the time and thousands of lives are being taken because of Mother Nature rearing her ugly head on our world, when we see that, when we see people walking into schools and shooting people up because they're so angry and upset about life, we realize and sometimes we wonder, God, are you in control? What's going on, God? Why is all these things happening? I get the question, but we are so theologically inaccurate when we think God is supposed to prevent bad things from happening. And that's why this passage is here, because he's predicting and he's sharing with us that these things are a part of us living in a very broken world. Because sin is here and it's prevalent. Because when people reject God, they're left to live their own sinful ways. And when that happens, they don't know how to deal with pain and suffering. And so as a result, they take it out of their own hands. 
and it's just a part of life. I mean, it's like somebody blaming me that my child is sick. How dare you let your son get sick? I had nothing to do with him getting sick. My calling as a father is to make sure I can be there with him and to help him to get better. My promise to him is that I will be there with you every step of the way. You don't have to go through this alone. That's my promise. And just because there's things in this world that's happening where people are dying and things are happening and you're losing loved ones just because your relations are being broken, it doesn't mean that God is not a God of love. That's the most theologically inaccurate thing for you and I to assume. Because if that was true, then why would God let Jesus be crucified? Why would God let his only begotten son be slain on the cross the way he did? It would have been better if he just fell off that donkey and hit his head on a rock and died. Why would he let his son go through all of that? You see, a lot of us, we associate suffering in this world to sort of be connected to God, sort of not allowing that to happen. And if he doesn't allow it to happen, then we thank him and we think God loves us. But let me just tell you something. Some of you haven't suffered in a while. You haven't gone through any losses in a while. Do you count your blessings every day? You better. A lot of us, we forget about God when things are going well. We often don't even acknowledge him. It's only when you go through hardships you actually look into prayer maybe, into connecting with God. And so the whole idea that we think that God is not in control because there's so much brokenness and suffering happening in this world is really not a theologically accurate way for us to understand God. There is brokenness in this world. We're the ones who ate the fruit. We created this mess. Global warming. That old, I mean, this country has been ravaged by hurricanes this past year. Puerto Rico, Houston, Florida, that is a result of our brokenness. God says in Genesis 1, he says to man, he says, you are to take care of this land. Do we? We don't. Global warming is a direct result of us not caring for God's world well. So it's our faults, really. It's not God's fault that these things are happening. We're destroying the environment in that way. And when somebody is so upset that they got expelled from school and he doesn't know how to suffer well, he decides to get a gun, an AR-15, and walk into a school in Florida and take the lives of innocent people. Metro, that is not God not being in control. That is somebody rejecting God and now they're living into their sinful ways. That's what that is, Metro. Parents, you got to pray every single day that God protects your child when they go to school. I just want to encourage, I pray every night before they go to school, I say, God, please protect them because we don't know. And you shouldn't live in fear, but you should pray that God protect them. All of these things are happening because we are making a conscious decision to reject God. And Jesus says, if you reject me, the temple will be destroyed. Meaning the most precious thing, things in our lives will be destroyed. Pain is coming our way. He even promises his disciples that even if you do follow me, pain is coming your way. But the beautiful thing about the Christian message is that our suffering has hope if we walk with God. If we don't, then there is none. And when there is no hope, then we see these stories that happen in the evening news. Some 18-year-old some goes into school and takes the lives of so many people because they cannot handle what they're going through in their lives. The more you and I reject God, the more we accept Satan and our own evil nature. And we have to stop rejecting him. Repent. Create a plan so that you can pivot and walk the other way towards God rather than staying so intimately close 
to your sinful nature. It's not about you never sinning again, but it's about you not allowing that sin to control you. That's what it's about. And for us, and I, I, I so relate to all of us if we're struggling with sins today. Any sin you struggle with, I probably struggle with as well. It's so hard because in the flesh it just feels so good and you want to do it. But you know after you do how destructive and how painful it really is. And you do have a choice. But when you reject God, you don't have a choice anymore. You surrender yourself to your own fleshly sinful desires. But when you repent and you learn to pivot, you learn that it is a choice that you can make, that you can control, that you don't have to let it control you. God's in control, Metro. Just because all the stuff is happening in this world and things are happening in your life, don't ever deny the fact that our God is ultimately in control. Jesus predicted all these things would happen. The second thing we learn from the words of Jesus is that suffering is an opportunity for witness. Suffering is an opportunity for you and I to witness who God is. Look at verse 13. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of, you, that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Jesus shares this with the disciples because he wants them to know that they are going to suffer. They are going to be persecuted. And as a result of that, his promise to them is that he says he will give them words to speak. But really if you look at it in a deeper way, if you dissect what he's saying is this. He will guide you and be with you. And so how can we be a witness? How can there ever be any hope to our suffering? Is when you allow God to guide you through it all. That's going to be key. If you don't let God guide you, then our suffering has no hope. And we know why things happen in the world as it does. It shouldn't shock us. But there is no hope to our suffering because our suffering then makes us to be very bitter. We get upset. We get angry. And all we do is we blame other people and we want to hurt others. And because we've suffered so much, we'd rather hurt them first before they hurt us. And so we're just sort of in this mode. Whenever we meet people, we just want to hurt them before they hurt us because we believe everyone's out to kill us and hurt us. It's a dangerous place for us to be. And so Jesus is warning this to his disciples and his disciples take word to it and they remember it because in the, in the book of Acts... Remember when Peter and John were speaking about Jesus all over the place? They went to prison. The Jewish religious leaders put them in prison. And the Sanhedrin council got involved. Do you know the Sanhedrin council is the Supreme Court in Jerusalem? Do Supreme Courts handle traffic tickets? No. It's serious offenses only. And so because Peter and John were proclaiming the words of Jesus Christ... They were in prison. The Sanhedrin council gets involved. And listen, look at how they order him in verse, for order them in verse 18. They said, then they call them in again and command them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter is just saying, there's no way you're going to be able to shut me up. Because the most important thing that God has called me to be is a witness. And when you and I suffer, hear me on this. Listen, if you're suffering right now, I'm not saying that you got to be able to flip the switch. No, you don't. And I don't want to disrespect what you're going through. Because some of you feel the pain of a loss or a grief that you're going through right now. But if you have suffered in the past, understand that God's promised that he'll be there with you every step of the way. And there's hope in your suffering. And as he does that, don't hide it and pretend it doesn't exist. Stop hiding behind your suffering. 
Embrace it and let it be a testimony so that people can listen to it and see and see that there is a God in heaven. Because the greatest witness that there is a God who is alive today is when we can meet people of God who are suffering well and they're a witness to the pains and the loss that they've gone through in their life. The world, thank you, the world needs to see that. They do. The world needs to see Christians suffering and being a witness from it because all we see is what's on the news. And it's so discouraging to see people suffering after suffering and how they get so upset and angry. And all they want to do is just harm and kill one another. All they want to do is get a divorce. All they want to do is keep breaking up and doing these things. And it's sad, but we have to allow our suffering to be a witness. What is the promise that God gives to us? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5. It's a beautiful passage here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can confront those, comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the suffering of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. God promises that he will comfort us. And he promises that as he comforts us, then our goal then is to comfort others who suffer. That is being a witness. How does God comfort us? He comforts us through solidarity. He knows the pain and the loss that you're going through right now. Jesus in just a few, we'll see in a few months, in a few weeks actually. The disciples flee. They don't, they're not even there on the day he needs them the most on the, on the cross. They just leave. He knows what rejection is about. He poured three and a half years into the lives of these men to be there on the most important day of his life, to stand with him and just to be there because he needed that support. And they all left him. He knows what rejection is all about. He knows what any kind of physical pain and loss is all about. Our God understands. But here's the thing. How does he comfort us? you got to let him break you. If you're not going to let God break you, then he can't redeem you. And so many times, for a lot of us, we get so strong when we're going through pain. We just feel like we got to get stronger. We feel like we got to just kind of get to a place where no one, that we're unbreakable. But that's not how God's going to comfort you. The only way he's going to comfort you is if you just let him break you. Let him break you so that he can restore you and redeem you. The best thing you can do today, if you're going through hardships, is just let God break you today. Because if you do, you'll experience a comfort. And that comfort from God will be so beautiful. And then as he comforts you and as he redeems the pain in your life, then you're going to be a witness and you're going to be able to comfort those who are going through the same kinds of pains that you've been through. And you can truly comfort them because you know how much it hurts. You know what it's like to lose someone. You know what it's like to lose a job and lose your house and lose everything. You know what it's like to feel like a failure because you set goals and you haven't been able to achieve them. The world needs to see people suffer well. And they don't have enough examples. And Jesus is saying, your suffering must allow you to become a witness for me. Will you let your suffering be a witness for God? There is no suffering that is outside of God's redemptive purposes for your life and my life. But you got to let him break you, guys. you got to let him break you. I never imagined in a million years that God would use my pain to be a platform for ministry. I lived much of my life hiding and never 
wanting anyone to know I came from an abusive home. My father was an elder in the church. How can I share with Christians that my father used to beat me and my mom and my sisters? How can I share with the church that I was so angry one time at my dad, I almost stabbed him while he was sleeping in the chest. That's dark stuff. And I wish it all came together really quickly, but it took years of therapy. It just took a long journey because all of that, there's so much things that happened. But I never would have thought in a million years that the reason why God called me to be a pastor is because of my pain. And that I can be a witness to it. I wish it was because he thought I was real smart and I could preach really well and I had what it took and I was tall or something. I wish it was those things. But it's none of that. It's, it's all I got. That's all I got for you guys. But you got to let him break you. Because if you're not going to let him break you, then it's, it's for naught. It goes to waste. And then there's no hope in your suffering. The last thing we learn from the words of Jesus from suffering is that it grows our endurance. Suffering grows our endurance. Look at verse 16. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and many of you have already. And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that. I'm like, what are you talking about? You say that we might die, and then you said not a hair is going to be messed up on us? Like, what's going on here, Jesus? Are you nuts? Like, is he like, is he like kind of struggling with bipolar or something? Is it coming from one end to the other? Jesus can say that because he's saying this is not your life here on earth. You might die here because Jesus, because you love Jesus. But not a hair of your head will be touched for all eternity. And that there is an eternal existence that you and I have with God. So what kind of life are you placing all your, your, your life on right now? A lot of us, you just think the 80, 85, maybe 90 years you have here on earth is all you got. There's so much more to your life than just the, you know, 80, 85 years you have on this earth. And Jesus is trying to remind you and me that as we try to live our lives for God, as we don't reject him, we try to embrace him, the world's going to hate us. And they may want to try to kill us because the world has rejected God. So if they've rejected God, you think they're going to take a good liking to you and me? No, they're not. But it's saying, don't worry. Stand firm. Build endurance. It will be okay because not a hair on your head will be touched in all eternity. And that's the life that you and I have to be reminded of sometimes, especially when you're suffering. That this is only temporal because there will be a time and a place for all eternity where there will be no more pain. There will be no more loss. There will be no more tears. But in the meantime, as we suffer, as we become this witness, God is trying to grow our endurance. Let him grow your endurance. Look what Paul says about endurance through suffering in Romans 5, verse 3 to 5. He says this, not only so, but we will also glory in our suffering. That's crazy. Glory in our suffering, meaning that there is something, he's saying that something so beautiful to our pain. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you and I can endure, if we can allow the suffering to help us to grow in endurance, Paul says that we will grow in character and we will have hope in life. There is so much hope in suffering today that the world has not taught you. And you need to let the word of God teach you. 
that as you and I suffer, we can glory in it eventually. And we can see the beauty of it because God has given us this endurance for us to fight and for us to walk and never abandon our faithfulness and our allegiance to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Many of you in this room, you know at least one, I would say at least five to ten people who are no longer Christians anymore. They've walked away in their faith because they've suffered something that just said, God, I'm done with you. They lacked the endurance. They didn't let God break them. And the suffering did not build that endurance in their lives. God doesn't take away your pain. So stop praying that God would. Rather, he gives you the strength to endure it. And he builds up an endurance and a perseverance within you so that you and I can have strength, character, and hope. No parent should ever have to bury their child. No parent. Can't imagine a greater pain than that. There's a story of a girl named Ava Lee. Some of you know because it went, her life and her story went viral. I didn't know about it until Pastor Doug told me about it this week. Ava was diagnosed with leukemia when she was five. And after beating it the first time with chemo, radiation, and a bone marrow transplant, she relapsed. And it came back again. She was seven years old when that happened. And she was in the fight of her life. Her prognosis was really poor. But her parents believed that as long as they have God, and as the mother who is this gift, this, I mean, if you guys can write, it's such a gift. What a gift this woman is. She wrote and blogged about Ava. And it became... News all over. It was on even on television. When Ava was eight, on January of 2017, she went to be with the Lord. It devastated her mother, Esther, and her father, Mike. Three months after she passed away, her mother, Esther, wrote some of the most provocative, heart-wrenching words any mom can write about losing their daughter. Here's what she wrote. I'm entering a new phase of grieving. The reality of Ava's death is finally setting in. The weight of her absence is so heavy. I'm really struggling to stand. I recently found a picture that she drew and signed in her crooked handwriting, Ava Lee. I'm devastated all over again. I'm trying to wrap my mind around the idea that I will never, ever again on this earth feel her soft little hands in mine. This new raw pain is searing and hot. I look around for an escape but realize that the only way out is to go through it. So with one hand in God's, I enter the fire of this new season. Acceptance. Somehow I will have to train my brain to tolerate the fact that Ava will not be coming home anymore. I tell myself to hold on and wait out this grief. But the truth is, full healing will only happen in eternity. I've been told this by many grieving parents who have gone before me. Now I can finally understand their words. I go to her room and look around. A few days after she died, I cleaned out all her clothes better sooner than later, I thought to myself. But now I'm not confident this is true. Would it be better if the drawers were stuffed with the clothes she would never wear again? Or is it better for her dresser to remain empty? I open and shut the drawers trying to make up my mind. What would hurt less? I wish there was a right answer. 
I eventually lay in her bed and cover myself with her blankets, and I cry, and I cry, and I cry. Soon it's time to take a shower. As the water hits my head, I'm taken back to the last time I gave Ava a bath. The memories come flooding in one after another. The last time I looked into her eyes, the last time I held her close, the last time I heard her say, Mama. I find myself on my knees, my tears running down the drain. When we found out that Ava relapsed in her marrow after our last attempt at chemo, Patty, Mike, and I met at church to pray. We began with worship, just three small broken voices filling the whole space. Patty on the piano, Mike and I with our voices. We didn't have much to bring, but we came anyway. Today, the shower is my sanctuary, and my tears are the songs of praise. I wish my voice was strong enough to sing out legit praises loud and clear. But for now, all I have are these barely audible and broken hallelujahs. I will enter the throne room with them anyway. I trust that whether it is a resounding chorus of a perfect pitch voice, voices singing in church or the wails of a broken-hearted mom on the... On the bathroom floor, God is pleased with our offering. Because the most important thing is not the beauty of our voices, but our hearts. Desperate desire to draw near to him. Even if all we end up bringing as worship is a bathtub filled with sorrow. Six months after Ava's passing, she wrote this short entry. It is hardest to believe victory is ours when defeat looms loud and large. But actually, it's on the crumbly ground of utter despair that we are trained to trust in his enduring love. Because if he will meet us there, then he will meet us anywhere. Today we're overwhelmed by incredible pain, but soon we will be overwhelmed by the proof of his pledge instead. Promise. Why? we go through so much pain and suffering because if God will meet us there he'll meet you anywhere will you let him break you today will you stop blaming him and know that he's in control of everything and him being in control is that he's there to guide you to be there and walk with you to know that you're not alone you be a witness. Let your suffering be a witness to the world to see that your God is there. And when you let your suffering build an endurance within you so that there's character and that there's hope in your life. Because if you don't, then my God, there is no hope. Because suffering without God is a life of no hope. What I love about Esther is that she didn't try to be more spiritual than she is. You can feel the pain and the weight of her loss. But she was still a witness in the midst of it. And she was enduring. And because of that, when you read this, as hard as it is, there's so much hope. There's so much hope today in your pain. There's so much hope to your life. May we learn to suffer well. Let's pray.